Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the crisis in Venezuela and how it's being covered by reporters on the ground. It's been a month or so of escalating tensions in the country between the government and the opposition and efforts by viewers and readers and listeners to make sense of it all have been stymied by restrictions on reporters in the country. Um, Some people have been detained. Some people have been arrested. Some people have been denied access to the country. Um, CNN and BBC have had their feeds unplugged. So it's made it hard to figure out what's going on. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Nick Peyton Walsh, who's CNN's senior international correspondent, who's recently returned uh, from Venezuela. Welcome, Nick. Carl, I'm thrilled to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now, you're not in Venezuela. In fact, you're on vacation, right? I'm afraid so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I let myself one week off. I promise I go back soon. That's amazing. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Oman. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, uh, I made it here and I made it out. Absolutely. So um, I want to sort of put this in context of other conflict zones that you've covered in a minute. But just talk to me about your last trip to Venezuela. Um, when was it and, and how did you find it? Well, the last trip was just about a week ago, and it was quite short-lived after the sort of early Tuesday morning appearance of the opposition leader who's sort of been recognized interim president by dozens of countries. He sort of popped up in early dawn with a bunch of defecting military around him um, and said that this today was the day in which the military were going to turn. And that made us all think that suddenly perhaps the end of Maduro might be near. And this was, this was at the air base? This was at the air base? That's correct, yeah, La Colotta Air Base. Yeah, it seems we hadn't really seen before. And we'd all, we were all hearing that something was coming on the 1st of May, but no details. And frankly, there's been an awful lot of hype coming out of the opposition over the past month. They didn't seem to be able to pull it off. But it looked like that morning that there might have been something completely new and different and fresh. So we all hot-footed it there. But that was the first time I managed to get in using a government visa. And you, you, you came from London? Correct, yeah. Okay. What 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 was the state of CNN's resources there when you arrived? I mean, how long has the network had a team there, and how big has that team been? Well, I mean, we've had a, a sort of a long-standing presence there with a, a freelance journalist called Stefano Pozzabon. He's done amazing work for us over the past years. Um, he has various other outlets that he works for too, but he's been terrific with us. And we've sent staff correspondents in and out over the past years, uh, mostly with government visas. There have been some times when we've sent people in without necessarily the full paperwork in order to have a look slightly more closely, slightly further away, potentially from government scrutiny to try and get to different parts of the story. And have you noticed any change in the difficulty in getting people in and out? Has that changed over the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, I would say strangely that as the crisis has picked up, there seems to have been a decision in around about late January where you know a lot of people were hoping to get government visas to go in officially, but finding it hard. So some people just sort of said, well, well, let's take the risk and try going in on a normal visa as a tourist, essentially. And there was a moment where there was a possibility the government might have decided to crack down on that, but they seem to have taken quite a relaxed approach and they let quite a few media stay on it increasingly more kind of visible in their activity. Uh, in fact, I think some also, too, had interviews with high-profile government officials. They weren't officially there, you know, that affects paperwork. So to some degree, I think the Venezuelan government decided they wanted to let some of the media in. 
But that doesn't take away the fact that your job is incredibly hard there because a lot of people are simply fearful about telling you the full story because they're worried they might lose their jobs, their food, or be targeted potentially. Mm. Hey, you, you, have told, you told my colleague, um, Andrew McCormick, that you found it relatively easy to sort of move around and you, you, know, you told him that you were at one point, I, I guess, in a hospital and you felt free to sort of speak on the phone, speak in English. You did, you, there wasn't this sort of furtiveness that you have in other war zones where you're worried about being watched or, or tailed all the time. No, I mean, we, as we were on a government visa, there was obviously less need for me to be discreet where I was. But, I, I mean, I, I will say that Venezuela is not the nastiest place at all. No, I mean, there are many countries in the Middle East where your movement is significantly more inhibited by the host country you're with, certainly. So, no, I mean, it's different to that degree. I think the difference you find as a reporter is that that doesn't translate into everybody suddenly deciding to open up to you and right. into their homes all the time. There is a, a reticence on behalf of a lot of your sources you're talking to um, to tell you the full extent of what's going on because they're concerned about what might happen to them. I, I want to get to that in a second, but just in terms of the government line or the government approach here, which you say has been sort of surprisingly open to letting reporters in, do you think that there is a... Um, uh, is there a logic behind that? Are they trying to discredit the picture that Guaido is presenting of the country? Or what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to tell if there is an actual concrete policy by the Venezuelan government to not crack down on all the media that are in there. But they must be cognizant of the fact there's a lot more reporters popping up than necessarily given out visas. Um, but that's by the by. I think that possibly the rationale behind it might be that if you are outside of Venezuela, living perhaps in Western capitals, you might get the idea that Juan Guaido is somehow the interim president of the country. Now, mm. well, he is in the eyes of many external countries, but he doesn't have his hands on the levers of power. Mm. And that's been the major problem he's faced in that he looks great on social media. Mm. He's a message of hope. He looks great in front of a crowd. He gives great speeches and he sounds... Uh, in the eyes of many Western leaders, like the guy they think is running the country, but he's simply not. And so I think possibly one of the things that maybe the government benefits from is allowing reporters in to see how, frankly, distant from running the country he is at this point. Now, he's an aspirational figure. He's somebody hoping to affect a change, but he isn't actually running the place. That's still very much the Maduro government. Yeah. So what did you find in this latest trip um, was the biggest uh, sort of gap between the image of the country, especially outside of Venezuela in the West, and what's actually going on on the ground? There's really one thing that every time you go strikes you the hardest. It's the enormous gap between, if you read a lot of the press coverage, deeply politicized, has a massive geopolitical tilt, it tries to view it in a sort of proxy war between Moscow and Washington, talks about the history of the United States interventionism in South America, um, the role of socialism in that particular region, and the Hadistas and how they sort of held a, a, a torch up for uh, policies involving free health care and education. You park away all that political nonsense, frankly, because it's got nothing to do with that. This is a man-made humanitarian crisis mm. that involves people for real no reason that couldn't be prevented, eating out of trash cans beneath glittering skyscrapers. This is a place that had loads of money a decade ago, mm -hmm. literally didn't know what to do with it half the time. It's built the infrastructure, has everything in place, but it's let it all fall to pieces, and some U.S. officials say that all the money gets stolen, yeah. to the point now where basic meals are the major challenge of most people. Mm. And, and you began to talk a little bit about this, about what it's like to talk to people on the ground. Um, 
What is in their reticence is is what? I mean, what are they afraid that the that the Maduro government's going to do if they if they tell that story that you just described to foreign reporters? Look, I mean, people have been arrested, people have been targeted, people have their businesses closed down. You know, you can lose your job. If you lose your job in the government, you lose your subsidized food handout, which means you lose your ability to feed your family. So there's a hell of a lot riding on people's uh, political fealty mm. much of the time in that country. Uh, and there also have been dark cases of collectivos who are the pro-government gangs, often who roam around armed on motorcycles, targeting people as well. So there's a lot to lose for people from talking to you. But there is still, I think, a, a desire for many people to have the outside world see exactly how bad it's fallen as a country. Remember, this used to be a place of startling wealth, of prosperity. Yes, government subsidized, fine. This was kind of one of the, uh, the privileged societies in South America. Uh, and now, you know, their neighbors in Colombia are experiencing a thriving economy. Yeah. And so while in the past, Colombians used to go into Venezuela looking for work, now it's Venezuelans going into Colombia. They've literally become the basket case of South America where they used to be the breadbasket. Yeah. And this is, um, the driver was uh, oil money? It was all about money. It was all about oil, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this, this is a petro state, potentially, uh, of the biggest oil reserves in the world. Yeah. And, you know, that's led them to never had a problem with subsidizing their food. It's fueled the socialist dream. I think the wheels started to come off, many observers say, when this turned from being sort of a, a, a socialist utopia, if it ever got to that point, to being a kleptocracy. I mean, that's often what we've seen in many sort of socialist countries, particularly the communist Soviet uh, era um, in Eastern Europe and beyond. You know, a lot of the time, the, the wealth is misused. And yeah. so many U.S. officials have alleged over years the simply embezzlement has been the sort of a national sport in government circles. Yeah. How much, if at all, is um, is sort of the role of the media a f- talking point or a factor in whatever you want to call it, this civil war, this this standoff uh, between Maduro and Guaido. I mean, you know, in um, Brazil, Bolsonaro made his hatred of the press, and, and he sort of borrowed a lot of the anti-press talking points from Trump. Um, it, how, how prominent is this sort of, like, cries of fake news or a war on, on the media in Venezuela? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is far from immune from all of that. You've got sort of Moscow in the background, so all the old social media tricks of pointing out what people consider to be fake news repeats itself. Everyone's considered to be biased the whole time. We've often found ourselves in a curious position where sometimes the reporting we've done has actually highlighted things the government felt favorable. So they've loved us one day, and then the next day we seem to be on the receiving end of, of something because they didn't like something we had to say. So it works both ways a lot of the time, and frankly, that's actually to some degree reasonably gratifying because you know you're telling the truth. But you don't hear this so much uh, on the ground from r- regular people that, that you don't hear f- sort of fake news or or you're... You're no, the... it's, it's not like Ukraine where, you yeah. know, you'd find yourself re- revealing which media outlet you work for and get a barrage of abuse from somebody yeah. waiting. Or at, or at a... After half a pint of vodka at a checkpoint. No, it's not that. Don't worry. Yeah. Or at a Trump rally in America. Whatever again. But... Um, so tell me about, I mean, you, you have this job based in London where you sort of, um, you go where the trouble is um, and you've reported all over the world. Um, what is the appetite are you finding at CNN which I guess we could take as sort of a proxy for U.S. media in general, for the Venezuela story versus everything else going on in the world? 
pretty high, actually. I mean, it's something we've been into for a number of years, but obviously since it became a foreign policy focus for Trump administration for whatever reason, um, and you'd like to think it was because of the humanitarian emergency, we've had um, a lot of resources thrown at this. We've pretty much had a teaming country apart from the last month or so, uh, apart from the freelancer I mentioned before, all the time. So quite a lot of dedication of resources, frankly, and you know, given obviously a lot of the focus being uh, on the Washington story at the moment at this sort of very pivotal point in American political history, it's been quite gratifying that uh, we've, as a network, spent so much resources and time on making sure Venezuela stays covered. What does it mean um, that when they cut off your feed, as they did recently, uh, and they also did with the BBC, that's um, what does that mean? That's yeah. just that's just the feed that goes to the local audience. No, I mean it means that people in the country can't see international Espanol. Seen in Espanol has been banned for a while, and they don't normally, I think, see CNN domestic. So it was international that was cut off, and you know, to some degree. Yeah, that's obviously a loss because we, we lose the ability to, to show people in Venezuela what we're doing in terms of telling the truth about what's happening. But then at the same time, two government officials can't watch what we're saying so, so detailedly and complain about it. We've had often you know, real-time reactions to things we've been reporting on um, by Venezuelan government officials. So there's a plus and there's a minus too to some degree. Were you able to uh, track back and figure out exactly what it was that, that prompted them to... To pull the plug this most recent I don't time. know exactly. I, I think roughly at the time in which that happened, um, a lot of networks, so not us, I think a lot of people sim- simultaneously had an, uh, issues perhaps due to some of the scenes that were being shown. This was, uh, the, the, was this the truck running over the person? I mean, I think it was around about that time that some... Uh, some people began experiencing broadcasting difficulties. You simply can't tell whether this was something which had been hatched hours earlier and only put into effect then, or if it was a direct result. I think it takes a while to you know, pull off taking TV stations off air, so I can't imagine it was a, a switch being flicked at that very moment. Do you know when you're going back? Uh, I hope soon, uh, and I think probably because of the nature of how the story's moving along and certainly how the Trump administration won't let go of that particular metal. Um, I think it's... Uh, uh, very likely very soon in the next sort of weeks or so. I can't wait, frankly. Finally, I mean, I know that you people in your job aren't exactly always eager to sort of pontificate about this sort of thing, but like, where do you think this, how do you think this is going to end? I think I think most people you ask in Venezuela realize that at some point soon Maduro has to leave because uh-huh. at some point he's going to run out of money to keep the people around him who he needs sweet. Uh, the question is, what happens before that? I mean, that could be 10 years away. We all thought Bashar al-Assad in Syria was going to leave. Yeah. Uh, he's guilty of far worse crimes than Nicolas Maduro. What does Maduro choose to do? Does the U.S. foreign policy kind of radar drift off onto something else in the next few years and he takes a breath and feels less pressure? Does the fact that little bits of aid are coming in through the Red Cross let him off the hook? Does Russia and China's assistance take some of the pressure off? We don't know how bad it is in that inner circle. I was kind of surprised last Tuesday that there were genuine inside Venezuela military defections. But if you look at the people supporting Maduro, Russia, the Chinese as well, it seems, you know, there's a lot of potential for him to drag this out. There's a lot of potential for the fragmentation of bits of the country if certain parts decide to go a different way. It's a huge expanse of territory. So I think the fear for me is exactly what condition does the country get into before Maduro leaves? It does there end up being some kind of low-level civil conflict rumbling on that perhaps exacerbates? Hard to tell. It's not really in their history. 
in in that particular country, but it's entirely possible that desperate men end up pushing people into doing desperate things. I mean, he's a sort of grown up as a union guy, right? A sort of organizer, Maduro. Yeah, he's a former bus driver who's sort of done incredibly well for himself. You know, he's not got a history of you know. So he's not he's not a mil- like- he's not a military general, or he doesn't have a history no, of sort of like, violence. He's not like Bashar al-Assad, you know, who yeah. saw his father Hafiz killed ten thousand people or so in Hamam. It, that's not in his his makeup. It doesn't have that troubling history. Um, the question really is: with, with the amount of weapons floating around that society, with the amount of money potentially at stake, and with possibly the feelings of those around him that you know they're not quite sure what else, what's going to come their way, if if he actually falls, they might be indicted, they might face some kind of justice inside Venezuela. Those are the factors that tend to keep governments together longer than their sort of normal life expectancy is. Yeah. Have you seen any signs of U.S.-backed uh, contractors or you, any U.S. U.S. sort of backed military no. operation? Nothing? I'll be honest with you, no. We've not seen any signs of that. There have been reports of it, but, I mean, you know, if you look at some of the border towns, they, you can imagine that that could happen there, but it hasn't happened yet. No yeah. signs of it yet. Yeah. Nick, before I let you go, what else is on your radar? Um, I mean, are you how worried are you about the U.S. and Iran right now? You know, essentially, I don't really think uh, the U.S. or Iran, either of them, see any benefit in some protracted military confrontation. Um, I think there's a lot of loud rhetoric happening. Um, I think the U.S. are possibly buoyed by the belief that a tough policy against Iran is paying dividends. But at the same time, too, I'm not necessarily sure that that will prove to have been the case five, ten years from now. Keeping Iran away from having a nuclear weapon is an incredibly difficult task, which that deal managed to do. And you can't ask them to stop every other thing they did in the region simultaneously as well, but slightly upset Washington. So it was a delicate balance. It's been thrown off short term. It may be causing Iran a lot of pain, but you have to be careful what they do in recompense to sort of keep their chin up in the area instead. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 it's definitely concerning when you start seeing Pompeo making unannounced visits to Iraq to kind of, you know, sure allegiances up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Nick, enjoy the rest of your holiday. All right, guys. Thanks very All much. All right. Thank you so much. Cheers. So you can read more about the situation in Venezuela vis-a-vis the press um, on CGR.org. Um, Andrew McCormick has a piece about uh, Venezuela and the coverage there that's up that you can read now. Also, check check out CGR.org for the live stream of an event that we're having at the J School. You can watch. It's going to be archived, and you can watch the whole thing. It's about uh, ethics and security and technology. And um, go to CGR.org to see everything else that we're up to. Thanks for listening. See you next week.